Hi, this is Shauna. Before we get to today's guest, I want to take a minute to learn more about you, the listener. We've put together a short survey at fueltalent.com slash podcast to gather information on who's listening and to give you a chance to make suggestions and comments about the show. I want What Fuels You to be a great resource for you and your interests, and I hope these interviews give you practical advice along with inspiration for your career and life. Help us continue to serve you better by going to fueltalent.com slash podcast. Thank you so much. Now let's start today's show. Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Mo Afshar. Mo is the co-founder and CEO of Pipe17, bringing the power of modern enterprise software to the e-commerce marketplace. Previously, he was CEO of Spoken Communications, which was acquired by Avaya, and he also served in various positions at Oracle. Over his 14 years at Oracle, he built and managed multi-billion dollar businesses. Mo is an advisor to several venture and private equity firms. He was educated in the UK and attended Cambridge University for his PhD in computer science. Welcome, Mo. So good to see you. Thank you for making this happen. Likewise. Great to see you again. Yeah, really appreciate it. I'm hitting you first with rapid fire. I think I know okay. the answer, but are you an introvert or an extrovert? <laughs> I think I'm an I think I'm an extrovert, but you know sometimes I find uh, I get introverted from time to time depending on what's going on. But I am an extrovert. I get energy from being around people. Yeah, I was going to guess extrovert. Uh, do you prefer to be near mountains or water? I'm a skier. So I love I love the mountains, but I also used to water ski and windsurf and stuff. So probably more in the mountains, I would say, these days. Yeah. If there's someone that you could grab an hour with to go for lunch, I guess it could be someone uh, living or who's passed away. Who would that be? Wow. Um, probably not a politician. Um, I'm not sure it would be a business person either. Um, I think it would be somebody with, you know, with somebody who had, you know, profound perspectives on different issues. I mean, I don't know whether you know Hitchens. He died um, a number of years ago, but he was a reporter and he, he really got deep into things and really tried to understand what's going on at a macro level. And I love that, those kind of perspectives. So it would be somebody like that who who develops deep insights by doing research into things that may seem superficial. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. Um, are you, well, this isn't even one of my questions, but now I'm diverting. Are you a reader? Have you read anything good that kind of puts you into that headspace around deep thinking? You know, I've um, read stroke listen, but I, I did read, um, you know, there was a book I read a while back, which was, um, this book called True Purpose, which is re it's a really short read, but it's about kind of finding your own true purpose. And it goes through a bunch of exercises. A little bit of, I mean, it's a little bit different off the trodden path, as they say. But it, it's actually super interesting because it helps you understand what you're built for. And that, to me, is a revelation. As you get older, you try to understand things that you are built to do well and things that give you enjoyment versus things that you think you must do. So I, it's, it, I love that book and very short and, you know. Uh, you had me at short and you had me at exercises because I love it when there's actionable, <laughs> actionable things in books where you're like, oh, okay, there's actually some take, some key takeaways. Um, okay. Are, are there three words that people would use or that I guess maybe that you would use to describe your management style? Management style. Um, look, I think results oriented would be kind of one common one that everybody thinks about, but it's a little bit different um, than what many would say. So I was having a conversation with a new hire yesterday and I said, look, you know, people who can get stuff done in a week can get stuff done. People who can't get stuff done in three months can't get stuff done in a week or any other time frame. So for me, I love focusing on results, but I love the mindset of we understand we're here to conquer a mountain. What are we going to do in the next hour or two or three 
that gets us to where we need to be. And I find that, you know, that's kind of, it's a really interesting perspective, at least when I talk to people about it, because it kind of really focuses on the kind of people that are there to build young companies and the kind of people that can plan and execute kind of a, a, a long-term vision. So I think the yeah. first thing is kind of results oriented, but from the perspective of how can we make sure everything we do is delivering results from an, an, an incremental perspective. The second thing is, um, look, I'm pretty hands-on and I think we can, we're going to talk a little bit about kind of history, but um, you know, when I, when I went to Oracle and I worked there for various, you know, great managers and great leaders, what I realized it's, it's really important to, to be able to understand exactly what's going on in the trenches, right? Which means you got to be, you got to get dig deep into the detail to understand how you can um, understand where you are and also how you can get to improvement. And then the third thing is big picture. And I think kind of this, I put at the end only because sometimes it's very easy to get stuck in the big picture and lose perspective of, hey, what results are we trying to drive both short term and medium term? And then B, how you as a leader can pop in and out to figure out areas that need attention and improvement and get those onto the right set of tracks so we can get to where we need to be. Yeah, well, those would be great people, great, uh, I guess, attributes for someone to learn from. Those are all really great. I'm like, this is now you not working. What's your dream uh, bucket list thing to do or vacation to take? Um, Antarctica. So I, I love traveling for various reasons, you know, culture, food, different perspectives. And, you know, I've seen a bunch of friends and stuff go to Antarctica on various trips. So I don't know whether you've been, but it's something I, I, I have not my been. Bucket list. It feels okay. like it's the kind of thing I'm supposed to say is on my bucket list. But if I'm being real, I don't know if it's in my top five. It sounds really cold. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, I love the cold. I function much better in the cold than oh, okay. in, the, in the in the warm. So for me, right. it's a perfect setup. Yeah. All right. Good. Yeah. Is there an app that you use the most on your phone? A great question. So clearly, Slack, email, calendar, Zoom, Google Meet. I, I use Evernote, and it's a little bit of a challenging product. But I like to prioritize what am I going to do today? What am I going to get done later in the week? And then what is stuff I want to look at later? And then I look at that at the end of the week and figure out how much stuff am I going to carry forward and how much stuff am I going to ignore? Because usually stuff drops off at the back of the list and you're kind of done with it. So that's how you use, that's what you use for your to-do list yeah, and your kind of, exactly. okay. Yeah. I always I'm love very, people use. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, look, I think I used to take paper notes and I find them incredibly hard to search, but I take meeting notes on my laptop and I used to take them on my phone. I remember the earlier days I was, I was sitting in meetings as like with a keyboard and like an early iPhone trying to type and people looking around like, what are you doing, dude? And I love taking electronic notes because they're searchable and then you can immediately figure out what was discussed and agreed. Yeah, I do it also, but I do keep them in my notes and then they're just not, it's kind of disorganized. So that's helpful for me to know. Um, okay, this is a weird question. I've never asked anyone on this and I've had like, I think almost 200 guests on now. Wow. Um, but I, I don't know why I thought of it, but I was just curious if you collect anything. Are you a collector of anything? And if not, if you could collect something, what would it be? Um, it's a great question. So, so look, I you know there's a side of me. There's two sides of me. I love um, I love cars. <laughs> so even though these days I'm I'm pretty low on that, uh, but I've, I love sports cars and stuff. So I just I think they're incredible machines. I love. Um, getting on tracks and and going fast and doing all those fun wonderful things and i also love watches because i think you know they they are beautiful pieces of art and they're so incredibly well made many of them that oh, yeah. they they serve a bit of a function but really it's it's the artistic nature of them that makes them stunning and if you get into the movements and stuff it's it's an amazing piece of mechanical engineering yeah, I love it when people are into watches because they just get so excited. I mean, and cars or anything that people get passionate about. Um, where where is your like passion for things come from? You're from where are you from originally? I know that you've studied um, abroad, and I don't know what brought you here. Tell me yeah. everything. Yeah, so I'll give you a little bit of a shortened version of the life story. So um, I I grew up in Iran, um, and I was very young before the revolution, and um, I think part of kind of my whole mentality around what I wanted to do with my life kind of comes from my dad. And he was an old economy businessman. So he, I think the best way to describe him is you would drop him into any situation, into any street, any country, any locale, and he would figure out how to make money in a week. 
right? So it was kind of one of those, you know, really traditional kind of business people. So I grew up there, obviously a lot of turbulence with revolution and and I ended up spending, um, we ended up getting uprooted and went to the UK, went to, you know, um, school as in primary, secondary school in the UK, university, and kind of made my way to the US afterwards. So I'm very much an immigrant as it relates to the US. But my passion to kind of find businesses, find opportunities and build businesses around them, a lot of them comes from kind of my father and kind of what he was doing and the kind of household I grew up in. And, you know, in the summers, you know, people go here, we send our kids to summer camps and camping and this tennis camp. And, you know, my camp as, as a very young person was just floating around with my dad to business meetings and just watching him negotiate and do things. And those kind of made the lasting impression of my. So my dad did everything from like property to factories, to textiles. He did diamond trading for a while. Wow. Mechanical parts. I mean, he did almost everything. And, so, and so as an really... entrepreneur or as a salesperson or what was he? No, entrepreneur. He built entrepreneur. things. So wow. that's why I'm saying he saw opportunities to make money in areas that he felt were ignored and he would build something yeah. around it. He had a chain of cinemas at one time before I was bored that he sold and wow. all this kind of stuff. So opportunity execution and sale. That was basically kind of his his thing. Amazing. And he had success doing those things? He had a lot of success doing it. It's That's great. He had a good sense of what the fundamentals of the business were. So he would yeah. land in there, figure out what to do. And, you know, as as he as he kind of developed in his in his life, he, you know, the, the availability of capital made it a lot easier for him because access to capital obviously in any industry is a big is a big thing. So you know, people with need to capital would always go to him. So it was a very early private equity education for me anyway. Which oh, yeah. Later on, I learned to realize. How did uh, your family uh, decide to go to, to not come? To, I mean, how did they decide where to, to go after the revolution? So it's a funny story. So we came, we, we used to travel a lot. So we came to the US and then um, we were in Hawaii. And I don't know, I was very, very young at the time, just before the revolution on the cusp. And my dad's like, this place is beautiful. I think I'm going to sell up and come and buy a hotel here, <laughs> just retire. Right. So at that time, like on my, on our way back, we had, a, I have an uncle who um, lived in the U S so he applied for green cards for us. So we were kind of planning to come here, even, you know, notwithstanding everything, all the upheaval, but, um, but really England was a, was a kind of, stop for us to the US but of course a lot of things happened and green cards wouldn't get processed for many years for people from my nationality at the time so basically we ended up just staying in England for years and years and years so we kind mm -hmm. of you know built built a life there and you know it came to the US many many years later yeah and long normal and do you have siblings yeah I have a sister yeah yeah, yeah. And, and how would you say um was there a strong Persian community um where were you you were in London we're in London. We actually went, it was it was a funny story. We went to a seaside town called Bournemouth, which nobody's ever heard of unless they've yeah. actually grown up in England. But we went back to London afterwards, yeah. Yeah. And was there a strong Persian community? Was your were your parents trying to more assimilate or hold on to kind of the, your Persian customs and kind of the food yeah. and the music and the cook all of it? Well, it's really interesting. So my dad originally, when we went to England, his thing was. And he had to kind of go back home because there are various things he had to take care of. As we discussed earlier, he had his fingers in a lot of pies. So, uh, you know, my mom, my sister and I ended up staying in the UK. And my dad asked one of his best friends grown up in the UK and went to school in the UK this question, which is, you know, what is the most boring place you can possibly think of that I could put my family in? And so my dad basically put us in this seaside town called Bournemouth. And it's like, it was basically known as a retirement town at the time where basically a nice climate, nice beach and all this kind of stuff. So it was, there was clearly very little, you know, in the way of community there, but there were a few people that, you know, the building we lived in, there was a bit of a community and we got to know it, but that actually was not the big consideration for my dad. It was like, what is the place where it's a good, you know, small place to bring up a family that would right, be where they're enough. safe and they can study and focus on their studies and all Correct. that. Was exactly. it clear that, um, I guess, education and academia was a family value and, and important to your parents? You know, it's interesting you said this. So um, my, I, I come from, an, I think it kind of helps form, form me as well, but I come from like very different backgrounds on, on either side of my kind of uh, mother mother's side of family versus father's side so um 
my father's side of the family, just hard traditional business people, very business savvy. And we kind of talked about a little bit about that earlier. My um, my mom's side of the family, doctors, academics, you know, pre-revolution ministers in government and this kind of stuff. So it's interesting because it was kind of the two perspectives have always been present with me. There is kind of the analytical side of like, how do you analyze and how do you make things work? And then there's always the business side, which is the hustle, understanding negotiation tactics and all these kind of things. So those things were, were kind of were both formative, were both very formative in kind of how I've grown up. But education was a big thing for my dad. So my dad always used to say, and he he left school, you know, so he told me like, there's one thing I want for, for you guys to be able to go as far as you, as you want with your education and to have access to that. And I think yeah. many immigrant people generally have that. A hundred percent. Anyway, yeah. Exactly. I mean, you took it to the whole another level. You've got your PhD in computer science, yeah. um, University of Cambridge. Yeah. What made you decide? I mean, how did you get interested in computer science? Who exposed you to that world? Yeah, great question. So I used to love. You know, it's funny talking to my son. You know, from an early age, I think he was three. Uh, he just turned around one day and said, "Dad, I love numbers," and this was like. Fine. Okay. I don't know where you're like, give from. me a high five. How many three year olds say that? Not many. Exactly. Mine did not. Yeah. Well, it was kind of an unusual thing. But anyway, so I had a love of numbers and, and mathematics and to some extent physics and various other subjects. So it was a real predicament, like what to do, um, what to do in university, what to do at university and later on. And so I, one of my cousins was actually a lecturer at kind of like what I think is the MIT in Europe, which is this place called Imperial College in London, which is a great school. And he was doing computer science. So I thought, okay, well, this sounds like a good way to take an applied part, which is, I love mathematics, but, you know, hard to make a living out of it unless you become a quant on Wall Street, which is not what, what I wanted to do. So I almost stumbled into it because he was there. And then I just went and I enrolled. I said, I have a lot of options after this. And then kind of one thing led to another. and We ended up building a career in it. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. But to take it to the whole another level and get a PhD, like, was that something that you, did you go straight through or did you work in between? So it's a great question. The PhD thing, um, I don't want to say parental pressure because it sounds a little bit odd, but it was a little bit of parental pressure as in, I mean, it was a unique opportunity. Cambridge is an amazing university. And, you know, I, I kind of went into it after, you know, spending a year basically figuring out, you know, working, do, doing a little bit of work here and there. So it was something kind of I felt I kind of wanted to do, but also felt there was a little bit of family expectation, like you yeah. should do this thing. Yeah. It's an amazing opportunity. However, I think it was one of the best educations around how to be an entrepreneur that I think one could ever have. And at the time, and PhD programs are structured differently even there now, but like, I remember when I was there my first week, my supervisor or advisor, as they call it here, he came to me, he gave me some conference proceedings that were a couple of thousand pages. And I had an interest in big data or whatever it was called at the time, databases. And he said to me, read these conference proceedings and then find something you think is interesting to do. And I was like, uh-huh. And I'm coming from this like university, Imperial College, where everything is super prescriptive, I mean, they kind of used to call it a degree factory, right? As in, you literally turn up and the factory makes you great. So I'm going from that very prescriptive, process-oriented, kind of hard-to-fail environment to an environment where I'm basically no structure, very little direction, and you have to find your own way. And that, yeah. to me, was like, it was hard. I mean, at the beginning, it was super hard, and it was so hard that... I reflected back on the, one of the interviews I had with the head of department, um, Roger Needham, and he turned around to me and he said, do you know that at any one time, half of my PhD students are depressed? Uh, I couldn't understand it because I've, I've always been a super positive person, right? I always think like, how can we make it work? And I said, yeah, yeah whatever. It's like, as, as, as we do when we're younger, like no problem for me. But as I got into it, I started to understand like what he really meant, which is you're lost and you don't know where you're going. And I mean, in the tech world, there's so many similar analogies in startups, which oh, is yeah. and you don't so have lonely. money and you don't have yeah. product market fit. And it's incredibly lonely, right? Which is a great point because like when you're doing a PhD, I mean, you may work in a group, but you're pretty yeah. lonely. You're doing what, what did you write your, your dissertation on? 
so it's really interesting. So um, I love data, as I mentioned to you. And so the area that I ended up writing a dissertation is was basically kind of what people eventually here ended up calling big data. And I remember when I wrote my dissertation um, and I submitted it during my, during my exam, one of the people said, look, this looks like a great piece of work. Um, do you think there are any uses for this kind of approach? Because it was deal with massive, massive amounts of data. I mean, at the time it was like early internet days, Google, I think was formed, but not many people knew about it. And the internet wasn't as much of a thing as it is now, of course. And I said, I don't know, somebody's got to come along with a huge data requirement to make this kind of approach work. And of course, we now know that people, oh, yeah. search engines and Google and all these things were the application of that. And in fact, some of the stuff that we pioneered there were the same principles of what Google built their indexing yeah. technology on, which is kind of a closed loop thing. Yeah. And what brought you to the US and what, what was your kind of launching of your career right out of uh, school? Tom, walk me through all that. I always love hearing about those first few years of school. Yeah, of course. So uh, as I mentioned, the early internet days were, were upon us when I was, you know, at the latter stages of my PhD. And, you know, I got the first sense of doing entrepreneurial things um, when uh, the head of department at the time um, came to uh, came to me and he said, you seem to be a little commercially minded. I got a call from the Ministry of Education asking about this internet thing and what it's got to do to education. Do you want to put your thoughts together and, and do a little bit of a consulting gig for these guys? And I'm thinking, aha, this is an opportunity. So that was kind of the first foray into anything kind of tech related. Um, but to answer the question, you know, in the latter stages of kind of the PhD, I got together with a couple of other folks and there was some technology we developed in what was called at the time, a computer lab. And the reason mm. it was called the computer lab is because the first computers were built when they used to put, you know, little bulbs together and stuff. So hence the lab. But anyway, we got together with a couple of folks and we built a startup and it was kind of the just before the 2000.com doom and bust. And Went through the process. Was of that Apama? Was that Apama, that company? That's right. Yeah. yeah exactly. And what did that company do? So we developed technology to basically filter real-time data. And so who would use it? For example, algorithmic traders. They would write algorithms, and then these algorithms would run and, and kind of wreak havoc on the markets. But you know, software to basically make decisions quickly. But that wasn't the application. We actually reached the application um, because we had a technology. We're trying to figure out kind of where to plug it into. And that was the use case that we found where people were willing to pay dollars for, right? But that was also a super interesting journey, which is, do you go market first or do you go technology first, right? A lot of people out of universities, they go tech first. I have a shiny toy. How do I make money out of it, yeah. right? Versus like, hey, we have a problem to solve. And how and did that go? Did you fund it or how did, did you solve it? We did, or? we did. Yeah. No, it was great. Look, I think the Cambridge community, even at the time, there were, there were a couple of very, very prominent venture capitalists in the UK, um, one of them, a gentleman by the name of Herman Hauser, who's like Mr. VC in the UK, and then Andy Hopper, who's kind of anything, anybody Cambridge related knows about Andy. And these guys said, we'd like you guys to be successful. So we're going to put some money into you. And yeah. Herman and Andy had phenomenal connections in the Valley. So we came out here, we raised money, we went through the boom and the bus and these kind of things. But one of my big realizations at the time was my way of working was much more attuned to the way people work. You know, I don't want to say in the US because it's a little bit of a generalization, but just the value culture of basically being focused on the outcomes, everybody being be getting up and, and really being driven to deliver on the mission and really make a difference. And I felt culturally I fit much better here than I did in the UK, where I, where I felt at the time it was still a little bit of a struggle to make a case for doing a startup to people and then hiring people and really getting them motivated to do something great. Right. Yeah. Interesting. So tell me about Oracle. I mean, I've heard so many interesting stories about Oracle and there's obviously these yeah. big companies that are like Oracle or Microsoft, like tell me about the culture yeah. and your experience there. Cause yeah. you last, you were there for a little over 14 years, long time. Yeah. I was there for a long time. Yeah. I was there for a long time. And so the Oracle experience was super interesting. So, you know, having, you know, done a couple of startups before Oracle and, and really kind of at least got an understanding of how things could work. One of my mentors said to me, 
you really need to go and get a sense from like what what it means to run a great software company. And you know, at that time, you know, Oracle was good. Salesforce was kind of in the early days. PeopleSoft was around. There were a couple of other kind of big software companies. So he hooked me up with um, with uh, Thomas Kurian, who now runs Google Cloud, of course. And then I went to chat with Thomas, and like my first meeting with him took three hours, where I think he spent his entire time. At the time, he was trying to do something really formidable. And his pitch to me was, hey, we're building a middleware business. Um, you, Because I was trying to tell him, basically, I'd like to do a startup. I'm really here to kind of get some advice and stuff. And yeah. he's like, no, 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 you don't want to do that. You want to come here because we've got a VC called Larry Ellison that's going to bankroll this and we're going to build a giant business and we need entrepreneurial people to do it. So then I self-reflected and I thought, this is a good place to hang out for a little bit. And we can talk more about kind of why, why I was there longer than previously anticipated. But the energy, enthusiasm and the intellect that I saw kind of made me believe that I could learn a lot there. Not only in terms of how to manage a big operation and it ended up being a massive operation but also in terms of how to build great businesses over time yeah i am curious what you learned because obviously if there's people that are building businesses and they're like hey what are some great teachings or learnings that i've got from oracle or different companies or what not to do like i guess the better question would be how has your experience at oracle informed how you have led um as far as building building culture yeah Look, I think when I, and I I had, even at the time, I had some heartache about going to Oracle, to be honest, because what I read and what I talked to people about didn't gel with what I saw when I, when, when I interviewed with Thomas and other people. Because Oracle, I think at the time, had a, kind of a little bit of a wrap around being a little bit of a ruthless culture. And what I saw was actually the opposite, which is we're here to build something really meaningful and important and we need great people to do it and we'll support them in that process. So I think part of it was I first had to reconcile, should I even do this, right? Should I even go along with this journey? And one of my mentors at the time, he said something to me, he said, look, go with the people, don't go with the news. Mm. As in the people you've met are largely people who matter. And he said to me, Look, at the end of the day, if I was, and he gave me this piece of advice that stuck in my head, which is think about the people you'll be working with, think about the problem you'll be solving, and think about the company you'll be at, which is kind of a little bit contrarian because people in certainly Silicon Valley have this like, you know, the logo chasing culture. And this is exact opposite of that logo chasing culture, which is actually look at it, look at being part of a meaningful team and solving a real problem and then worry about the company. So, so I think largely, you know, I I thought through, I thought through both the culture side, as well as what my expectations were going in a lot before going in. But to answer your specific questions, look, I think there are things about what I learned there that to me kind of profoundly impacted, I think, who I am and what I do. So the first thing is what it means to go after a market in a very deliberate way. Right. And and many people say that big companies don't move first. And I think I'd agree with that. So the question boils down to when a big company sees an opportunity, how do you mobilize an entire company to go after that opportunity and to execute on it? And we built that. I mean, we we literally built a you know five plus billion dollar business in not that many years by you know seeing the market opportunity. Defining the strategy, which a lot of it came from Thomas, but also we had to do our own pieces, but really defining what problem we're trying to solve, how we're going to go about it, how we're going to be different and differentiated and much better than any other solution out there. So this was a really good lesson because as a small company, you you know, when people ask you how you're going to differentiate, you kind of talk a little bit about it and that's kind of it. And you do enough to convince the VCs or whoever else it is that that you're going to do the real thing. But in a big company, we had a maniacal focus on differentiation. How are we going to win? And people always think, ah, big companies always going to win because they got the scale. Well, that's not the way we were thinking. We were thinking like a small company. What does it take to be successful? So I think, you know, broadly speaking, you know, commit to a market, you know, commit to a vision, and then mobilize and run a team in order to deliver the results, right? Which kind of goes back to what you asked earlier around, of my management style because a lot of it has been influenced by that which is Mm. being results oriented and 
being pretty focused on the details where you need to be. Mm-hmm. And, and, you mentioned um, you mentioned mentor. Do you have like formal mentors, or has it just happened organically? And also, do you mentor others? Um, so, I think it happened organically. I think you know one of the things one of my um, organic mentors uh, he said to me once he said, "Mo, I think your unique skill set is you ask a lot of questions." And you try to understand. So I think part of my whole philosophy is whom can I call that can help me think through a problem, right? So I think that to me is like, that is how as a, as, as, as a person who's looking to be mentored, I think about the situation, which is, hey, I've got a problem with, you know, thinking about how to scale my marketing organization or sales organization at the time or personnel related things or HR related things. Whom should I call that's been through a similar journey that can potentially help me think through things? So I've thought about it from the perspective of how can I get help on an outcome that I need or on a problem that I need to solve? So that's always been something that I've tried to do. And at the same time, I've always tried to be there and available for people who have got similar questions. So whether it's, you know, a friend who's trying to you know, think about whether he should grow his venture fund or whether he should, you know, whether other friends who are earlier in their career and who are navigating, you know, what jobs to take and what options to take. So normally it kind of has traditionally been through kind of what I would call a pseudo transactional model, mm-hmm. as opposed to like, hey, will you be my mentor or can you mentor me, which I haven't traditionally done, yeah. although I know people do that. But for me, yeah, it's, I've it never done that either. But I've yeah. always been curious about when people say mentor, I'm like, how do people go about it? Because I've had, um, I have had people reach out and ask me to be their mentor. And it's, it's an interesting thing because you don't know what that exactly means. It's mm. better when it happens kind of organically. I yeah, agree. Exactly. Yeah, um, exactly. That's kind of so why did you, about. why did you ultimately leave? And I'm guessing that you've just kind of had that uh, entrepreneurial bug ever since. <laughs> so, you know, I, the, the, the inside story is I actually was about to leave at least three times that I remember. Mm. And and every time, you know, the powers that be were like, hey, Mo, you know, we have this other thing for you to do that's super interesting. And whether it's, hey, we're going to buy a hardware company and we want, you know, you've never done hardware at scale. So why don't you do this or, you know, a SaaS company or some other company or just a big company to scale. So Mm-hmm. Every time I was thinking about things, there always happened to be something that would get pushed in my way that I found was interesting and fulfilling to do. So I think part of it was, I think the powers of be were, I think, I'd say smart in terms of figuring out, you know, what it takes to keep, you know, great talent around. But the bigger question around leaving was for me, I've always been an entrepreneurial guy. So I always look for problems to solve. And My big realization, which is, by the way, one of the conversations I have with people who I try to bring into Pipe 17, which is my current company, or in fact, the previous one from a big company, is the realization that your job is never done in a big company. You Mm. have to realize that. You just have to figure out when you should just put a line in the sand and said, I'm going to go and do something else. And I always had this thing with me, which is, it's not done. I've got to do these other things. So there's this business that I grew from like, I know, zero to 250 million. I want to see this go to a billion, right? So it's that realization that you just, at some stage, you have to say, you know, I'm done and I'm going to go and do something else. And it's not about bigger, better, more responsibility, more people. It's about doing something else. So that was, I think, the biggest realization around change, uh, I think. So what did you go do? So it's really interesting. So one of uh, one of the and here comes the Seattle connection. But yes, I gotta of, know. One of the one of my dear friends, um, also a phenomenal entrepreneur, he was on the board of this company, and uh, it was an ignition company. Uh, for those in Seattle, they know ignition well. And he's like every time I talked to him, he was like putting something in my ear. Oh, when are you gonna leave? And oh, there's some interesting things that this company I know about's doing. And one of these days, you know, we, we went up there when, you know, we're visiting Seattle. A couple of friends of mine live up there, lived up there at the time. And we went to his house and he's like, you know, Mo, you know that company I told you about? They really need a CEO. We've been looking and I think you'd be the great, you'd be a great guy for this. So just come and talk to them. Don't make any decisions. And at the time I was like, actually, you know what? This is a great idea. Let, let's talk and figure out 
if there's something that makes sense because I wanted to kind of have kind of a level of autonomy around what I do and um I thought that would be a great opportunity and I also to be honest I was a little bit done with the Bay Area scene and this is probably a drinks discussion but the San Francisco Bay Area scene is uh, is intense and it's good to be out of that roller coaster for a little bit at least and figure out what to do so that was kind of the story that ultimately led me to um spoken which is the company i was running up in seattle um yeah for a few years and what did that company do and how was the experience kind of what you expected versus uh different oh this is a great question so the company in one simple terms it was kind of one of the pioneers of cloud-based call center technology so of course my first question is like what does that mean and what it means is like in the old days people used to buy custom switches to do call center stuff so not just mm -hmm. ip switches but like you bought a Cisco or an Avaya switch to run your call center explicitly. So obviously with IP and the internet and stuff, in theory, you just need a router and software should be able to take care of the rest of it. So there was a, um, so Spoken and kind of built a business, which is cloud-based, you know, contact center business. And it was one of the early pioneers. But I think as I learned to, as I learned and realized over time was there were a few challenges around strategy, around um, execution that, really needed help and because one of my struggles with it was hey if this company's doing well why does it need somebody else to come and run it right and but when i got deeper and i went there i i realized that a few things one of them was and i had a call with one of my best friends you know at the end of the first week and he says like mo what's it like i said this is broken that is broken this is broken this other thing's broken that <laughs> thing's completely non-existent and he said oh, no he said, oh, my God, you must be really depressed. And I said, no, no, no. I know how to fix this. This is my thing. I know how to get this to where it needs to be. So I think it was an amazing kind of realization or re-realization that all those skills you picked up, you could actually put into practice. And with all the things I picked up, also Oracle around how to run organizations, align them, and then drive them for results, et cetera. How many people were there? And like, I feel like when you're coming in to do that type of work, a lot of times it's, it just has come down to the people too. Like, do I even have the right team in place to yeah. mo to mobilize and like do what yeah. I'm trying to do? Yeah, no, completely. So look at the time, um, I think there were about 300, 200 plus people. So it was a sizable company in terms of um, size of company revenues, et cetera. I think the big thing for me is I went in there because the CTO amazing inventor amazing guy Gilad he had a vision and he could build anything and I thought you know what all I need is somebody like that and I can figure the rest out so yeah. for me when I went in it was kind of basically I'd already accepted that I may have to do significant changes and we had to do significant changes which goes back to the whole culture and and how you do things properly but um but the reality of it was we, we needed to do a lot of changes and we need to realign the company and we need to divest the businesses that didn't make sense. And we need to double down on stuff that did make sense. And we need to make people believe that the strategy that we were on was not sustainable and we had to do something different. And that was super hard. And the other part of it was the cultural part, which is, you know, once the culture of a company sets in, it's incredibly hard, even we're a 300 person company to change it. Never mind, you know, a 50,000 person company. Yeah. And how was the culture and how did you, like, what would you have changed? Um, look, I think there were a few things. So I think, you know, Gilad would say, and it would be interesting if you asked him the same question, but I think um, accountability was one thing. And I think this is huge in, in, in kind of my book, which goes back to, you know, being results driven, which you asked about earlier in terms of one of my management style. But I think you have to be able to trace everything that you're interested in as a KPI or as an outcome back to a single owner, obvious, but there was a little bit of, anyway, there was issues around accountability. Yeah. The second thing I think is just having a strategy that could actually win in the market. And I think many companies see this because as they grow, they start to sell additional products and they start to do more services and the growth is sustained. But that is not the way to build a great business always, right? You need to you need to figure out this one thing we are selling. How can it turn into a billion dollar business? Not how can we have a portfolio of like 27 products, each of which makes 5 million. Because right. this to me is more of a private equity play 
then it is a venture place. So I think the second part is just figuring out the strategy of what is it we're going to do that is actually going to give us a winning, a winning um, focus. And then as part of that, really figuring out like what was the core thing that we were going to do? And then what is the thing that was going to make us win? And we realized that platform we had was great, but we had a whole bunch of AI projects. So we took one of them and, and we integrated it into the product. And that made a completely differentiated product in the market that nobody else had, which is why the company acquirers came around and you know the rest is history. Smart move. I love it. Now nowadays that's like every single company. That's that's the move right there to make sure that they're utilizing AI and, yeah. and that's a whole other conversation. So tell me Absolutely. about tell me about this gig with Pipe 17. Pipe 17. I love I love the name. I read about um the origin yeah. story of the company name. Sure. Can you can you share it? Yes, of course. So so I'll I'll give you the little bit more about the name in a minute once I tell you what we do. So and kind of more around why, because I think the why is always interesting for people. So after we um, after we sold the last company and you know everybody was happy, I took a little bit of time off and then figuring out what to do. And this thing around fixing culture was a big thing in my head. So I talked to a lot of friends and in Seattle and the Bay Area, and they're like, "Come and run this company and come and run that company." And do you want to move to the UK to do this and that? And you know, I the biggest thing I took away is it's really hard to do turnaround. Not I'm I think I was well cut out to do them, and I think I am, but I wanted to try something different which is to build a company. So I spent kind of a year and a half looking at this e-commerce space with an investor. It was a great opportunity for me with a bunch of investments that worked out great. And as part of that, I was looking at this e-commerce space and I was saying, okay, so easy to sell stuff online. You can import anything. You can buy it off Alibaba. You can list it on Amazon. You can put your stuff on Shopify. How do you deal with all the complexity on the back end? that is really about getting goods to like Shana's house in 24 hours or 48 hours and then making sure that all the backend data reconciliation and stuff is addressed. And we looked at this problem when we call it order operations, but in essence, you know, how do you connect all the systems that need to be connected once you capture an order? And we didn't think this problem was well solved. And we said, the problem is really about connecting systems up. It's not about selling an application. And that was a unique insight that we had. And then we said, well, we need a name and the name pipe because we connect and 17 because we help you to see because in the brain is the Bodman area, which is the visual cortex. So we came up with a name and, and, you know, we built a company around it. I love that. I love the name and I loved reading about the origin story. So tell me when you were doing kind of the, um, the market research, did you, what was that process? You call into different companies and figure out what the back end looked like at that time and what problem yeah. there was to solve? Like, how do you even yeah. pretend I'm a UW student and, and I'm, you're teaching me how to, yeah. how to assess this type of opportunity? So um, the first thing is I was a little bit fortunate because I was working with an investor. And so everybody's interested in talking with an investor, which kind of says that if you have the opportunity to hang around you know, with a VC firm, I think it's great education. So I think that was a little bit of an unfair advantage, I think, in, in, connecting with companies and understanding what they do. But I think, and broadly speaking, I think you've got to get a sense of where the market is, which is what the buyers want. So I think you've got to figure out, okay, I want to go after this market, make a choice, you know, then B, go and talk to some people who have problems in that market, and then C, figure out why the solutions there fail to address their needs. And I think that third part was the hardest because as we know, we, we started to dig more and more, we realized, the solutions didn't work very well because they took a long time to implement. They really couldn't scale. And even when they did scale, companies ripped them out for various reasons. So I think that whole process was kind of a little bit aided and streamlined, but it boiled down to find the customer, talk to them about the problems they have, figure out the common denominator and go in with a point of view that this is the reason the market is broken. And we have a different way of looking at it that can help us build a great company. And I, it goes back to the training I had not only in the startups that I did, but also at Oracle, because we went through a similar thing, which is who's, what, who are we trying to sell to? What is the problem that they have? Why have they failed? Other solutions failed? And how do we make it scale? Interesting. So the problems that you were solving for your customers in the early days 
Are they the same problems that you're solving Great today? Question. And how has that changed? Great question. I think, look, when you come from, you know, earlier in your career or even at this stage in your career, you always have to develop a level of conviction around what you're doing, because I think without conviction, it's hard to build a great company. But what I would say is one of mentors, advisors, he said to me, find a customer, go and build something. And this to me was like very, it ran a little bit against my DNA because I really like to think things through, really understand what the market opportunity is, build and execute. And there are some people who can do that because they've been so deep into the problem at another company, at a big company, where they can just extract themselves and start day one doing the thing that they're going to end up doing later. As I have realized is most people don't. So the advice at the beginning was go and find a customer and build something. And that's exactly what we did. We just found an early customer. We built something. And that thing largely has evolved, but it's largely stayed very similar. I mean, we rebuilt it in full disclosure once because we had to, but our understanding of the market was accelerated by 100x. And no amount of talking, research, reading would have given us the same understanding. So I think that advice to me is golden. Unless you know exactly what problem you're going to solve, how you're going to solve it, what's differentiated, pick a problem, build a solution, iterate around it, and figure out where the dollar is like and where you can build a great business. That that makes great sense to me. Tell me about the, I don't know if you can give me, you don't have to say the company, but like give me an example of a customer and exactly how you're working with them and helping them mm -hmm. and then how you make money. Like what's the business model? Yeah, exactly. So uh, local company, a camera company called Wise, so that they're across the, their offices in Kirkland. They make home cameras. So if you guys are familiar with Ring or other home cameras and security systems, amazing company, phenomenal Pacific Northwest success story. But in essence, Wise is one of those successful mid-market, what we call mid-market brands that is growing a lot. They want to sell in more places. They want to be able to get goods to their customers more quickly, and they want to manage costs. And if you really think about those things, they kind of don't really make sense. Because if you want to get things to customers more quickly, it is going to be more expensive. And if you want to sell in more places, it kind of is going to cost you money to do that. We help reconcile those three requirements, right, for them. So we run all of their orders. So if you talk to them there and you say, like, what, what, do, you business your, what do you run your business on? They're like, we sell on Amazon and Shopify. And Pipe 17 runs our orders. So every order in their ecosystem runs through Pipe 17. And it's a traditional SaaS model. You know, people pay a fee and then they process all their orders through us. They connect, we connect to their warehouses. We connect to their financial systems. We connect to their data lakes. But every order flows through us to get to you. And that's what makes us so important in their setup because we're helping them transact, right? And that to me was really important when you're building a product and a business that you become critical to the to the way the customer works. So how are they saving money doing that? I guess I'm confused about yeah, that. Great part. question. Yeah. So they were actually building this because it, within kind of the roughly within the e-commerce space, there's a capability called order management, which people think about. And there are a lot of retail focused solutions out there. But if you look at like what I would say, mid-market companies, a lot of them have to build their order, their order processing or order management software because they're not going to bite off some big 12-month implementation and it's they're not going to get what they need even if they do that. So in our market, it build is the most common thing we compete with. We need, we, we're selling on all these channels. We have these warehouses we need to connect to and we have these systems that need to have an up-to-date record of what we sold. We're going to have some developers connect these things. Very time-consuming. And hence, Pipe17 comes along that says, we can save you money. We can help you use your developers for what you should be using them for, which is building a great product. And we'll manage all of that operational complexity in our platform. Wow. And so when you spend your day, like how many employees do you have and how are you prioritizing your time as far as leading the business? Great question. So we have about 50 plus people. So between, you know, people who we have in the US and people we have offshore. So it's a decent size, but it's still where you have to be scrappy. And I believe being scrappy is really important as you scale your business. 
Um, look, I tend to focus more and more on how do we grow this, the business, right? That to me is like, I think any CEO's job, you know, I, I read a lot about, you know, CEOs being infatuated with the product. For me, that's really important, but you have to get the product direction, right? Which is, this is the market we're going after. This is why the customers would buy. This is why it's better. And then, you know, I focus on helping build the business, right? Which is, which is to me, you know, at the end of the day, the right to survival is building a great business. And that's yeah. what I focus a lot of my time on. But of course, there are fires to fight, whether they're, you know, escalations or people related issues, which you have to get into because that's part of life. But oh, yeah, the people know. part. Speaking of the people, tell me about a little bit about the culture. Have you guys set a vision and a mission and kind of what makes somebody successful at Type 17? I think the different questions. So the, the answer to your first question is yes. I think we believe in, in one very simple terms. We, we believe that, you know, if, if you're a seller, if you sell things online, like, you know, people like Wise do and Rip and Dip do and The Chosen do and Noble do and various other customers of ours, you have the choice of, should I only sell on Amazon? And if you only sell on Amazon, it's easy. You put your stuff up, you pay them some marketing dollars, you, you ship their stuff, your stuff to the warehouse, they take care of all of it, all of it. We want to bring that simplicity to customers who want to run their own website and they want to have their own warehouses and things. So for us, we're really clear that we're there to help pe people reduce complexity and get the next step up in function in terms of being able to sell more and, and, and save costs. So I think, yes, we've done those two things. I think the bigger thing, what question, which is what makes people successful at Pipe 17? So I think the first thing is results focus, right? So you know, people will, will sometimes tell you I'm a little bit impatient, but it goes back to that desire that I want to see us move the business on an hourly and daily basis, on a weekly basis. And one of my mentors once told me, he said, Mo, when you get in the car in the morning, in the days we used to commute, he said, think of, on Monday morning, think about what you want to get done this week. On Friday, when you drive home, think if you hadn't been there, how much of that stuff would have happened anyway? Right. And that left a profound thought in my head, which is we really need to focus an entire organization on the vision, but also delivering incremental results. So the first thing is people who I mean, can get stuff done. Excuse the expectives. But, you know, that's the we first say get we say ours is literally we say get shit done. Right? Just <laughs> yeah. get shit done. We don't have time for it. Get shit done. Let's go. <laughs> so indeed indeed so you you said it probably better than i did so i think that's kind of the first part about what makes somebody successful at pipe 17 the second thing is you know people who strive for excellence right and i've got pretty high standards and i learned about that not learned but i truly understood what that was like when i worked for you know thomas Corina, you know that was at the time at oracle which is really understanding what excellence is about and driving the organization towards excellence and the third thing is committed committed to making a significant change in the industry, which is what all of us are trying to do. Love it. And um, so as far as like, when you say you're like moving toward, moving toward, you keep speaking like that, which is what we're supposed to do as the CEO of the company, right? Yeah. Where are you going toward? Like at what point we'd be like, we have arrived at where I was trying to go. Is there a goal? Is there an exit strategy, some sort of plan for three to five years out? So look, I think this is a really interesting point because, you know, it's funny when you read, um, you know, they have this saying that history is written by the victors, right? So when you read all these books from, you know, people who've been successful, you know, Larry, Benioff, um, you know, others, you know, they have a good sense of like what it took to get them successful. And of course, they knew on day one what kind of company they were going to build. Yeah. This is obviously not true. If you read Phil Knight's book, you understand that this is actually not the case. And, you know, there's a little bit of revisionist history going on in, in, in a lot of uh, in a lot of these uh, commentaries. But but to answer your question specifically, I think, look, we know that e-commerce is growing. We know that e-commerce will get bigger. If you walk down downtown Seattle, you don't you don't need to yeah. leave me. Just walk downtown Seattle. You know, business is going online and got, got going to Bellevue. So, so I think we we know the macro trends. So you've got to we know that we're in the right place. The second thing is, we know that operations is hard. We saw that in the IT world. IT operations was hard. Massive companies like Splunk and New Relic and all App Dynamics and all these companies got built because IT operations is hard. Commerce operations is hard, and 
that complexity needs to be solved in a fundamentally different way. And the reason I'm saying that is because I think we have a lot of potential to grow the business. But I think my view is the answer will come to you over time. So what is our you know, three to five term, uh, three to five year goal is to help this vision become a reality in the market, to help close the gap between kind of the big problem that customers have, which is operations is hard, and the increasing piece of it which that we solve, which is making it painless and making it streamlined and making it less costly than any other solution. So I think, you know, as long as there is a problem to solve, we'll be here. Of course, you know, the market will give you the answer, mm -hmm. but we have to do something really meaningful and fundamental, right? I'm, I'm excited to watch you continue to build it. It's awesome. Right. Love it. Right. So I know that you're also doing a lot of advising um, and work within venture and private equity. What advice would you give entrepreneurs around funding and strategies and, and also um well my second question is separate um i guess do you enjoy that work and how much of your time do you spend on that um not as much as i would like to because i think it's it kind of is it's it's different so i like doing different things which is why i think being a ceo is such a great job for me because that enables me to focus on different things um look i think i you know there's a lot of generic advice but i think you know timing is important I think that, you know, one of the biggest things that I personally see, this is not like a venture capitalist view, is that investors have to believe that there is downside to not acting today, right? And that they need to act. And I think until you see more of that, which is they fundamentally believe that they will miss the boat, the default strategy is to do nothing. And of course, I hear all these stories around, oh, from all the venture, venture folks, oh, we're investing, we're doing this, we're doing that. At the end of the day, if you read the tea leaves, what it tells you is that the market has to be such where they feel compelled to act, which means that asset prices have to be kind of going up and they have to feel they're going to miss the next big thing. And of course, it's happening in generative AI, but it's not happening everywhere else. So I think there's that part of it, which I think General advice is don't fight the market. It's not you, right? So if you're going to all these meetings and you're getting turned down, they'll take the meetings because they got nothing better to do, right? So don't see as a reflection on what you do, but take the feedback because any kinds of feedback I think is important in helping you be a better entrepreneur and in helping you build a great business. So I think that's kind of, to me, understanding the funding market is the most important thing because I think the rest of it the mechanics everybody talks about, it's this piece that there's a lot of fuzz around that mm. it's harder to talk about. Interesting. And you enjoy doing it. You want to be more doing more of it. Um, are you doing just like angel investing? So I do a lot of angel investing. I, you know, LPs in various funds and stuff. So that's always fun because, you know, you get, you get to talk to investors exposure, off, yeah. uh, offline and get to see interesting companies and interesting problems and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, continuing to do that. I mean, anybody who's done angel investing knows it's a law of numbers. You do three of them, you lose all your money. If you do 20 or 30 of them, there's a good chance one of them's going to hit, right? So yeah. I think you have to be disciplined in terms of anything that you do. But I think, you know, I'm a big believer in technology and the power to transform. So for me, there are great opportunities out there. And I think they're great entrepreneurs. And I think if there's anything, you know, really seeing who really wants to make a difference and who's committed to the journey, not yeah. somebody who wants to try it because it's glamorous, glorious, everybody else is doing it. I can make a lot of money. Those Right. People looking for a shortcut or just looking for some sort of ROI that's, you know, financially motivated versus really trying to, to move the needle on an industry or like innovate in some sort of in some sort of way. Well, I'm super psyched that you're in Seattle. We need more people like you. I love your energy and I love what you're building. My final question for you is what fuels you? What fuels me? Um, this is a great question. I think two things. One of them is I love winning and I've always loved winning, but I tell you one of the things we didn't talk about the Oracle culture was Oracle culture is all about winning. I mean, like if you see Larry with his sailing boat, you know, escapades and what he did with the America's Cup. And I know T.A. McCann was on, you know, a few weeks ago on your podcast, but it's that winning culture. Anybody who's trying to build a business has to be about winning. So I think just, you know, you can think of it different ways, but winning to me is really important. 
Second thing is making a difference, you know, doing something meaningful over the long term, building something. And I mentioned a book to you earlier, but, you know, that really helped me understand what I enjoy doing, which is building things. Um, third thing is, to be honest, I, I always had this thing about my dad. And if you know, if you know, you know, some entrepreneurs, there's always some family function, dysfunction that fuels them. <laughs> the thing with my dad was always proving to him that, you know, I know he had the better business instinct. I kind of still do, but that there is a different way of doing things that could also be equally successful. Right. So I think it's that part of like proving to, to your, you know, parents or whatever it is that you could be bigger and better and et cetera. And then the final thing's family. I mean, I love my family. I enjoy spending time with my family. I love going skiing with my son. And I think, you know, I love working. Don't get me wrong. And my son says, you know, daddy has to work so we can do all these things we do. But it's really important to me. And I, and I treasure those moments. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. Thank you.